Okay, all you investors out there, this is Dustin Heiner, and this is the Master Passive Income Podcast. We are on session number six, and today we're going to be talking about a fast, fast way to grow your rental property portfolio. You know, a portfolio, basically, if you have one property, that's one property in your portfolio. If you have 10, that's 10 properties in your portfolio. Well, we're going to talk today about how to dramatically increase the number of properties very quickly, and that's with using other people's money and using leverage, but using it wisely, but then doing it in such a way that you're recycling the money over and over and over again. It's fantastic. It's how I went from one property to 19 properties in just eight years. Okay, let's jump into the session number six where we talk about investing in real estate and how you can increase your portfolio. All right, let's go. Welcome to the Master Passive Income Podcast, where we talk about investing in real estate rental properties with a special focus on making enough money so you can quit your job and live the dream life. And now, here's your host, Dustin Heiner. All right, guys. Today, we are going to be talking about increasing your rental portfolio very quickly, almost exponentially. And it's a process that I have learned, actually, my very, very first property that I had, I used this process. And I, in the process of eight years, grew my property portfolio to 19 properties where I had six to $8,000 a month coming in every single month in net passive income. Before we get into that, I'm still here on my six-week Europe vacation. I've taken my family all through Europe. Today, we're in Austria. If you've never been to Austria, it's absolutely beautiful. I flew in on the plane. I looked down. I saw the, the Alps. I saw beautiful green um, uh, rolling hills with the Alps right next to them. Um, snow everywhere. Everything just looked absolutely amazing. I thought, I want to live here. This place is awesome. Now, as I'm going through it, it uh, you know, driving through it and seeing Austria, it gets better and better. Who knows? Maybe I might move here because I don't really need a job or need to live in a specific place. But anyways, all that to say, I'm continuing on our six-week trip, and we're in Austria right now. It's absolutely fantastic to be able to take my family on a six-week trip. You know, it's already been four weeks, and it just seems like it's flown by so fast. But at the same time, we've seen so many awesome and amazing things. If you go to my website, I have pictures of all the places that we've been from England to Scotland to Ireland to Israel and now Austria. Now we're going to go on to Germany soon and France and Belgium, all those places. Now let's jump into what we're going to be talking about today. And that is going to be dramatically increasing your rental portfolio. And with this process, over a relatively short amount of time compared to what it would normally take, you will actually grow your rental property portfolio just like I did. Now, there is some steps to this, but it's very, very simple. It's actually common sense once you think about it. Once I go through this process, you're gonna see how easy it is for you to do this exact same thing. So let me give you a little story of how I first found out this process and really just did it myself. I didn't even think anything about it, like uh, maybe making a process of it, but I've done it many, many times over. So when I started my rental property business, I bought my first property for $17,000 in cash and really, really inexpensive 
expensive or cheap property. Um, it only rented for a bit, I think it was $525 a month. Uh, but that was all the money that I had. And I didn't want to get a loan just because I didn't have the ability to get a loan. I didn't have the extra income to pay for the mortgage. So I wanted to buy a property that I can get cash really, really quickly. And this was in 2007 before the market crashed, before the banks stopped lending money. And so what I decided to do was spend $17,000 of my own money. Basically, it was all the money that my wife and I had to buy our first property. We bought our first property. It was a total of $17,000 in cash and fixed it up, got a renter in there and started renting it out. Now, shortly after, I thought, you know what? I don't have any more money, but I want to buy another property. All my money is tied up in this one property. So I started thinking to myself, how do I get access to this money and utilize it so I can buy another property. And so what I decided to do was call up every single bank that I could. It could be you know big national banks or even local and community banks and credit unions. I started calling every single bank to ask them if I could take out equity from the property because I owned it cash. I owned it completely outright. There was no mortgage on it. See if I could pull money out. Now, the most of the downside uh, for banks when they uh, offer such a low amount of money coming out of their pockets for the loan. So the loan of $17,000, usually they don't make much money. It's much more hassle on their end because such a low dollar amount. Now a $200,000 loan, that's a lot more money. And so they're, they're much more willing to do that. Usually, um, and even right now, uh, any loan that's under $50,000, banks don't really like to lend. So this was in 2007 and they were just giving out you know, money uh, left and right. They were just basically anybody had a pulse that wanted to apply for a loan, they give a loan. But it, what I decided to do was call up um, local banks. And so the area that I was investing in Ohio, I started calling up local banks and saying, I, I have this property. I bought it cash. I own it outright. I'd like to take out money from the equity. And so I found after calling maybe two or three banks, I found a, a bank that actually lent me, um, I think it was like 80% of the total value of the home. I pulled that cash out with the refinance, got a decent rate. Um, the mortgage payment was only like $120 a month or something like that, really, really low. And I took that same money that I just pulled out, so I, uh, I bought a second house with it. So here's what I did. I bought a first house, waited a little bit, maybe two or three months, started calling some banks, refinanced, pulled all that money out, did a cash refinance out of that property, and then used that cash, the, recycled that cash, and then bought another property. Then after, this is my second property now, after maybe two months after that, I thought, hey, that worked out great. Let me go ahead and do it again. So I pulled out money out of the second house and then bought a, actually I bought three and four, number three. So I won two and then bought the third and fourth house in quick order. Like really like it was one month bought one and then the next month bought the other. So I had four properties within, I want to say like a year and a half. I had four properties and basically used the same $17,000 that I that I bought the first property with and recycled that money enough times that I had four properties. Now, the two different loans that I had on the first and second property, I want to say that the total mortgage was right around, let's see, one was $120, the one, other one was $250, so that's $370 a month. So $370 a month that's coming out of my pocket in a mortgage. But the great thing is each one of those properties was bringing me $550 a month. Can you believe that? That's $1,650 a month coming in passive income or not passive. That's total rents. But then you minus the mortgage 
minus property management fees, you minus taxes, insurance, vacancy factor, all that sort of stuff. I was pocketing with those two mortgages, $1,000 in passive income. That's passive income. That's that's profit. That's not counting all the expenses. I actually have that money coming in. And so each time I started thinking, wow, this is a great way to buy properties. And so once the market crashed in 2009, I did not have the ability to get any more loans because they weren't giving them out, especially that low dollar amount. So let me jump into what this term or this this process is called. So I've heard other people call it um, a bunch of different names, but one that most people have heard of recently is the uh, BRRRR method. And that would be very, it's like basically an acronym for the process in which you go about building your property rental portfolio very, very fast. And this is how I did it. I buy my first property. I rehab or I fix it up. So the R, so buy is the B. R would be rehab the property. I get it ready, rent ready. Um, I don't want it the best house on the street. I don't want the worst house on the street. I want it to be where a tenant will get in there and live there for 10 years. That's what my goal is. So I buy it, I rehab it, get it rent ready. So buy, rent, and then, uh, sorry, buy, rehab, then I rent it. So the second R is getting the property rented. That's the, that's the, the big key is getting that property rented so you have passive income coming in every single month. So once you do that, the next step is to then refinance that property. Now, some banks have different criteria for how they actually go about doing the refinance. Some need a minimum of three months, six months, eight months, or a year. So you just call around to as many different banks as you can until you find a bank that's going to give you the loan that you want, or if you need to wait just a little bit longer. Now, all those processes are very, very simple. The bank will walk you through how to actually do the refinance. Don't even sweat that. They want to actually give out loans. So they're going to make sure you get everything done right. Now, the next step is very simple you repeat the entire process. Now that's how I got from one property to two to three to four very quickly is I actually repeated the process. So when you're thinking about buying your first property, think about what, or basically how much money you have, how much um, equity you're gonna get. So let's say when you're buying a property, you have, I don't know, $10,000 to put down, $20,000, $5,000, whatever the amount is that you're gonna put down. That, that doesn't really matter how much money you're putting down. What matters is the equity that you have in your property. So I'll give you two, two scenarios. First scenario, if you buy a home that you buy it at $100,000 and you fix it up and put $20,000 into it, so your total of $120,000 with a mortgage um, into the property, but the actual appraised value is $200,000. Well, there's $80,000 in equity in there that you can tap into. The banks will let you borrow 80% of that. That's $160,000. You can effectively pull out $40,000 if that makes sense. So $200,000 would be the appraised value. Bank will let you lend 80% of that. 80% of $200,000 is $160,000. Now you'll be able to borrow $160,000 but you put in 100,000 to buy the property and 20 to fix it up. So 120 or sorry, $180,000 minus sorry, $160,000 minus $120,000 is $40,000 in your pocket that you can potentially take out. Now here's a huge key. Biggest tip I can give you. That's uh, one of the best things about this. That's tax-free money. Now imagine if you sold that house 
you put $120,000 into it and you sold it for $200,000. Well, that's great. You made a great profit, but you pay a lot in taxes because it's capital gains tax. You're going to pay whatever the capital gains rates might be 30% or 20% or whatever it is right now. Um, but you're going to pay that rate and you're also going to um, have other fees and things like that you're going to have to pay. And so what happens is when you refinance, the government, the IRS, does not look at your loan, the money you're pulling out. They don't look at that as profit. They look at you as taking it out as a business expense so you can actually write it off. <laughs> Instead of paying more in taxes, you actually pay less in taxes by pulling the money out because the bank sees it as a loan and you can use that money to buy a Ferrari or you know, 40,000 is probably not going to buy a good Ferrari, but you know, buy a really nice car. You can use it to take your family on a trip. You can use it however you want tax free because that's your money. The government doesn't care. They just care that you're repaying the loan. They'd say, well, you got the loan. You make sure you repay the loan and that's all they really care about. And they give you a tax deduction for getting that loan. So for me buying that first property and pulling that money out, now I have that mortgage. Now the bank is actually going to, sorry, not the bank, the IRS is now going to tax me less because I have that mortgage, because it's a business expense. The second property, exact same thing. Instead of selling it and, and getting capital gains tax on it, I actually pay less in taxes because that reduces the amount of taxes that I owe. Hopefully that all makes sense. Um, now, the next step is really, oh, sorry, that was one scenario. If you uh, remember, I was talking about two different scenarios. So the first scenario is where you bought a house and you put fix it up and you got equity because you fixed it up. You made it a lot better. Now, those aren't the easiest to come by. Here's another scenario. And I've done this actually two or three times. You have, if you have your own home, which I would strongly recommend that you own your own home. This is my own personal opinion. Some people differ, but I personally believe um, I'm in the business not of renting myself, like pay into rent. I'm in the business of rent, being a landlord. And so I buy my house and after living in it for maybe seven years, the value of it went up. I fixed up the property. I, I, you know, added a new kitchen or remodeled the kitchen, remodeled the bathrooms and, and put new flooring in. So the appraised value went up. So from when I bought it, I bought the house at $210,000. I probably put in maybe $30,000. So I'm at 240. By the time I got done, it was appraising for, I want to say 280, 290, something like that. Well, anyways, I ended up pulling out $40,000 in cash from my own home. Now, obviously that raises the mortgage. You know, I, you could either get a second or get a whole new loan. What I did was I opted to get a whole brand new loan with cash out. Um, and don't worry about the terms. Just talk to any mortgage broker and they'll actually walk you through. They, they'll, they'll, no, they know everything about this loan process. They've done it many, many times, so don't even worry about it. Just let them walk you through it. Just tell them what's your ideal goal. You know, if your goal is to pull out the cash out, as much cash out as possible, they'll work it out so that you can. So I pulled out $40,000 out of my my home. Now, you know, you could be thinking, well, that $40,000, you know, how much is that mortgage payment, that extra on top of it? Well, in reality, I think it was only like $400 no, no, scratch that. It was like $350 more a month. So what I did was with the $350 more a month in mortgage, I took that $40,000. I bought one property. And that one property, actual passive income was $350. So with one property, I paid for that mortgage. And I think I bought the property for $10,000 in cash. So I still had $30,000 to play with. 
So basically, that whole added mortgage was paid for, and I still had $30,000. Well, then I bought two or three more properties with that cash, strategically buying them, and then I had, on top of having the mortgage paid for, I had $1,500 in passive income coming in on top of that. So hopefully that makes sense. So it'll give you a couple scenarios of how you can hopefully use the uh, the buying of a property or using a property that you currently own to refinance. So that was step one, is buying the property. Now step two is rehabbing the property to get it rented. Now this is not, um, you know, flipping it. You're not wanting to put the best of everything, you know, like uh, uh, sub-zero refrigerators or, you know, countertops that are either marble or something like that. Now if your area calls for that, where your tenants are wanting that type of property, then you know you probably want to put it in. But at the same time, that might not be the best place to rent. You want to rent where you get good tenants in there. And more than likely, good tenants are not going to um, move out to try to buy a home. You know, if you go and get a really high-end property that costs a lot of money, that you're going to have to rent for a lot of money, those type of people may turn around and want to start buying. My point of view is, this is what I tell all my students. You want to buy a three-bedroom, two-bath, two-car garage, 1,200 to 1,400 square foot home. Not something that's that's spectacular, that's you know, 3,000, 3,600 square feet or something like that with eight bedrooms. You don't want that headache. Yeah, there's many different reasons. So take it from me. You want to have as little headache as possible, as little rooms as possible, as little square footage as possible. And so if you buy a three-bedroom, two-bath, 1,200 square foot to 1,400 square foot Car, um, two-car garage home, you're going to have a lot less headache. So in order to rehab this property to get it where it's rent ready, remember buy is the first one, rehab and get rent ready is the next one. And so you need to make sure that the home is fixed up enough that the tenant, the future prospective tenant is actually going to like the property, get or, you know, pay you what you believe it should be renting for. So if you think it should rent for $1,200, Make sure the property's fixed up enough that would command that much money coming in. You know, if you think that you're going to get $1,200, but you get, uh, you know, 1000 that's not good. If you think you're going to get 1200 you get 1400 that is good. Obviously, it's easy to say that, but you need to have due diligence before you actually buy the property. Talk to your realtors. Talk to your property managers. Talk to contractors. Talk to other pro- uh, property managers that are not, not even yours. Just say, hey, I have this property. How much would you rent it for? Call up other um, listing agents and say, uh, realtors that would actually list the property for lease. How much would you lease this for? You want to have a good understanding of what it takes to get it rented, how much you could rent it for, and how much money it's going to cost you to get it rented. So that's step number two is rehabbing the property, getting it rent ready. Now remember, you're not you're not a homeowner. You're not the one that's going to be living in there. It's a business. It's inventory. Think of it as inventory. I have dozens of properties and they're all inventory for me. And I don't think of it as, okay, this is my home. Let me make it perfect. You don't want to do that. So step three is you want to rent the property and acquire a signed lease. You want to have the tenant sign your lease and get in your lease. You know, you don't want them to dictate the terms. You want to make sure that they are set up on your lease and they start paying rent. Now, what is going to happen is this rent that you get in, you're going to document that as income for the bank. You re- this, is, this is crucial because what the bank is going to want to look at is the debt to income ratio, and don't worry about this, you're not gonna actually have to remember this, the bank will take care of all this paperwork and the numbers and everything, but your debt to income ratio 
must be at a certain level. I want to say, you know, some bakes are 65%, some are 70%. That's pretty high. I've, I think I had one that said 73% is the highest I can go debt to income ratio. Now with that signed lease, you're going to show the bank that you're actually making money from this property. That increases your, your, your income coming in, which decreases your debt to income ratio, which allows you hopefully to get the actual um, refinance through where you can actually pull out the cash. Now, what you want to do is you want to make sure that the property is ready to rent, get it rented, and then after the tenant's been in there for a couple months, so you have a signed lease. Now, it's not always necessary, but sometimes the um, mortgage broker may want to see the leases to make sure that the, the property's actually rented because they want to verify that you actually have the income unless you have it on your W-2s. Your W-2s are your IRS forms that you file every single year. And so what they do is they want to look at to that you're verifying your income, that you're not just just blowing smoke and saying, yes, I actually have a job, sir, but you don't have a job. Um, you know, you, you want to make sure that you say, yes, I have income and I can actually document in the income. So I've had many um, mortgage brokers and banks ask for the leases. I'm like, sure, here you go. Here's the lease. Now, step four is refinancing the property and cash out 75 or even 80% of the property. Now, there's two different things you can do. You can either refinance the property and get a second mortgage on it. So you have a first mortgage, you keep that current one that you have, and you get a second mortgage on it. You can do that where you have two mortgages. But what I usually do, it makes it easier. The banks like it more. They don't like being in the second position. You know, first mortgage, the, the bulk of the loan that you bought the house for, that's first position. So if you default, they're going to get the first money. Whatever money comes out, they're going to get the, paid the, the first. The second loan the second mortgage on it is going to be paid after the first if it gets any money. That's why banks don't like being in second position because they're more than likely not going to get any money if you default. Now, this is what I do. I usually refinance the entire loan and say, I want a whole brand new loan, brand new interest rate, um, brand new terms. I want to start all over. And what the banks actually do and there's a downside, which I'll get to. What the banks usually do is they like that a lot more because they're going to be in first position. They're going to start everything all over again. And you're going to get a full cash out um, on top of the regular mortgage. So it's basically just one loan. Now, the downside with that, let's say you have a property that you've been paying for 10 years on it. It's a 30-year mortgage. You've been paying for 10 years on it. Well, your whole 30-year mortgage now starts over. If you get another 30-year mortgage, it starts over at zero or, you know, the first day. So you have 30 more years. That's 30 more years of, or sorry, 10 more years of interest that you're going to, because you've already paid down 10 years. You have 20 years left. But if you get another 30-year mortgage, you have another 30 years. It starts all over again. Now, the big downside is banks get their interest up front. So your first mortgage payment, your very first mortgage payment out of the 30 years, you're paying like 90% going to interest and 10% going to principal. It's horrible. But, you know, it's a cost of doing business. You actually um, use that to make money. But here's what happens. Towards the end of the mortgage cycle, at the end of the 30 years, you're paying like 90% principal, 10% interest. And so by the time after, you know, I think it was like year 15, they already have their money back that they lent out and everything on top of that's gravy. And so when you start the clock over again, you get another loan, you actually start paying all the interest up front all over again. So that's the big downside. So you have to play out and weigh out your options. A good way to get away from that would be to get a second mortgage. Now, now to get the loan, 
talk to as many mortgage brokers as possible. Now, I've gone through many different mortgage brokers. Some have gotten the job done, some haven't. Usually, I go with one until they can't do it, and then I go through another. Um, but more than likely, I'll have at least two or three lined up. Um, I'll go with one that sounds the best or that sounds like they should be able to pull it off the best. And if they can't do it, I stop it with them. I go with another one. And obviously, I, I well, here's a, a quick tip. And this is when I say obviously because it's obvious to me. But uh, a quick tip is I'll give you: um, don't have them do an appraisal until they're they're just about done with the underwriting. Once they're you know everything, they looked at all your paperwork, they looked at your income, they look at your debt, they looked at uh, you know the lease. Once they've done everything and they're about ready to sign the papers and they're saying, hey, all we need, the last thing we need is the appraisal because that's when money comes out of your pocket. Before that. No money should come out of your pocket. I've never paid anything before that. They only get paid when they get the loan through. And so the only time that money comes out of your pocket is when you do the appraisal. Now, I, like I said, the tip I'm giving you is make sure you do not do the appraisal or pay for the appraisal or even have them do it but because they're going to reimburse you or you're going to reimburse them later on. Don't have any appraisal done until you're just about ready to close. They say, hey, this is the very last thing. So wait until the very, very end. Now, in doing that, what you're going to do is you're going to have everything lined up beforehand. And if right in the middle they say, hey, we just can't do it. Our debt, your debt to income, our investors don't like that. Your debt to income, you have to stop what you're doing with them. Go on to another mortgage broker. Then, hey, you don't have any money out of your pocket. Now, what's not going to be able to happen is more than likely the new bank is not going to take any appraisal that another bank has done. Now, some might, I'm not going to say it's never going to be possible, but it's very rare that a bank is going to say, yes, go ahead and give me the appraisal from a different appraiser. Um, uh, it, it can happen, but I, they usually frown upon that. They want their own appraiser. They want their own uh, person sent out there to make sure that it's appraised properly. So I would say have two or three lined up, go with the best one, only pay for the appraisal when you're right about ready to close, then go ahead and pray for the appraisal, get the appraisal done, and then you can move on. All right, so remember, so the, the B is to buy, next is the R is to rehab the property, the next one is to rent the property, then re R, the next R is to refinance the property, the last R is to repeat the process. Now, mistakenly, I just did this the first time. I thought, hey, I just want to use my money all over again. And then I did it over and over again. And then I even bought a $150,000 house in Houston and refinanced it and pulled out all the money. So I bought it with cash, $150,000 in cash, and then pulled out all the money because I, after improving the property and fixing it up, I improved it to like $210,000 or $230,000 or whatever. But I literally pulled out all the money that I put into it. So I was in it. I owned this property for zero dollars out of my pocket got a mortgage obviously the tenant pays the mortgage which is fantastic um, and so all that money came in my back in my pocket and I was able to buy even more properties so I'm basically recycling my money over and over and over again imagine that you know I started with seventeen thousand dollars that was the all the money I had now I know that's a, it's not a lot of money to a lot of people I completely understand that that was a lot of money to us when we first started but now after recycling that money over and over and over and over and over again and doing it strategically, we now are able to do, like I've said, we're traveling Europe. We're going for six weeks all throughout Europe. We just got done with Israel and they're now in Austria. It's just been absolutely a blast. Now, 
what I did was I sacrificed for, you know, eight or 10 years of working hard at my job, buying more properties, sacrificing, not going on vacations like this to where now I don't have to have a job. Money comes in without me working and I am able to do these sort of things like go on six week vacations um, because I have these rental properties working for me without me working. So that passive income comes in. All right, guys. So this was session number six where we talked about the BRRR our method, our, the bar method, I, I guess yeah, I'm just joking. You don't need to use that, but it's so simple. It's buy, rehab, rent, refinance, and then repeat. Super, super simple. Now, if you haven't already, go to my website and sign up for my newsletter. If you do, I will give you my free investing starter guide and I'll also keep you updated on all the great things going on. I'll give you content that people won't actually see on the blog or even on the podcast. You'll get actual content of how you can invest in real estate uh, specifically through my my newsletter. So if you're not on my newsletter, you're not going to see some some of the content that I give out. But um, anyways, thank you guys for listening, for joining me for session number six. And if you haven't already, I would appreciate you guys subscribing and rating and reviewing the podcast. I really appreciate it. Hopefully we can get more and more people investing in real estate and changing their lives so that they can quit their jobs because that is the the best thing that you could ever do, in my opinion, is quit your job because then you have all the time in the world to travel, to spend with your family, to do your hobbies, to exercise, do whatever you want, and basically not being told what to do. All right, you guys, this is Dustin Heyer with Master Passive Income, session number six, and I'll see you soon.